The flight call sign was Cactus 1549, um, and I sat over lunch uh, with a new friend named Raza, who was telling me what had happened to him now about 10 years prior. He said as the, air as the airplane began to climb through the clouds, there was a sudden noise, and then the loud rumble of the engines turned to complete silence. Now, Raza's dad had worked as an aerospace engineer for about 20 years, so he was very familiar, and he traveled all the time uh, for his business in Seattle, and, uh, and he knew exactly what had happened that moment. They had just lost both engines, and they were now powerless uh, over New York City. The pilot of the plane was Chelsea Sullenberger, known as Sully, and after a very quick assessment of the options, uh, Sully chose to try and land the plane in the Hudson River. It was an incredibly risky move, but uh, one that I think, uh, that a decision that was vindicated maybe in the, after that by, uh, by all those who understood what he might have been able to do. Now, we call it the miracle on the Hudson because all 155 souls on board were saved, if a little soaked, including my friend Raza. So here I am talking to him over lunch saying, tell me about what happened. How did people react when they realized that they were going to have to basically crash land this plane. He said, there was no screaming on board, just a really somber, sober silence as people took in the situation and began to prepare for the worst. I, I just, I, I reflect on that all the time, being a person who's traveled quite a bit and thinking about that, and I just, I know in that moment, because I talked to him about it, he said, nobody, at that moment, people were only thinking about two, they weren't thinking about promotions, nobody was worried about fashion or cars or politics or anything else. At that moment, the only thing, there were two calls made in the next five minutes, uh, like one of, one of my friends says, there were two calls made. One was this kind of call, <laughs> a call to God, and then the other call was like this, saying to the loved ones that they could reach, I love you, I don't know if I'll make it through this, but I want you to know how much I love you. Nobody facing death, nobody facing a, a, a situation like that says, man, I just wanna, I just, please bring me my checkbook, I wanna hold on to it one more time. <laughs> and thankfully, everybody there got to see a new day, and I actually watched this video about how, um, how the, the, the survivors of this get together on an annual basis and how many of them refer to this as the thing that changed their life and their, the very best experience they'd ever had because it brought perspective to them in a way that maybe nothing else had. Now, in 2 Samuel 23, we are getting the tail end in our text today that I'm about to read to you of the life of a man named David. David had started out as a young man and became Israel's greatest king. Even to this day, uh, if, you, if you look at, at, at scholars, they would say David was the greatest king that Israel ever knew. There were some, like Solomon, who expanded the borders even further, but it was David who was the greatest king. And here at the end of David's life in 2 Samuel 23, it says this. These are David's last words, the voice of the son of Jesse, the voice of the man God took to the top, whom the God of Jacob made king, and the hero of Israel's songs. And then as you go on through the chapter, it's interesting, what we get from David is not necessarily the, 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 the you know, parting thoughts and here's my advice, it's David reminiscing. It's a list of the most important people in David's life. His friends, the relationships that mattered to David, the people who were there with him in his most difficult times. He's at the end of his life, and here at this chapter, in his parting words, he turns his attention toward the people who mattered most to him. 
Over the past few weeks, we've kind of stressed how each one of us was created to be dependent on each other. That we aren't fully ourselves, really, until we are investing in and being invested in by others. Now, isn't it, it's a wonderful thing, I should say. I'm not even going to ask the question rhetorically, but it's a wonderful thing that God has called us from all kinds of different backgrounds to walk shoulder to shoulder with each other. The Bible's unique, I really believe, in that it assumes that our cultural, social, family, and personal differences are not meant to be erased, but they're meant to complement one another and to become a blessing. It doesn't, you know, when Paul uses the analogy of the body of Christ, he doesn't say, and now you are all going to be the same. He says, actually, the body functions together because you're all different and because you're all under one head is the way Paul talks about it, who is Christ. So we believe that here, and that's the premise for what we're talking about when we go through this series, Better Together. King David is one of the most interesting figures in the Bible, I think. He did. Started, started at the bottom, and then he rose to great heights. I, I would say that he had a shaky experience there. He conquered a nation and nearly lost his family. There's hardly been a man like him since, though. One man that would be called king, general, rock star, national pastor, prophet, songwriter. He was all these things wrapped up into one. We're still singing the songs that David wrote over 3,000 years ago. We're still singing those songs, so take that old town road. You had a good run at the top of the charts, but David has been here for 3,000 years with us, right? And when he reflects at the end of his life, it's not the general who's speaking. It's not the king who's speaking. You know, it's not the politician who's speaking. It's not even the rock star who's speaking. It's the friend who's talking. He's thinking about the people who made him who he was. There are people in our lives who have an outsized impact on who we become. They leave their fingerprints on our souls for better, sometimes for worse. Now, here at New City, I've made this statement before. We said that we want everybody here to get a friend and to get a job. Now, I want to clarify that because I think it was a little bit ambiguous at first. Get a friend, meaning I want you to have somebody that you know and that you're in relationship with, at least one person, but, but hopefully more, that you, can, that you can rely on, that you can look to, that you can go to when you're in need, and they can go to you when you're in need. And when I say get a job, I certainly am all for full employment, but I mean a job here at New City Church serving other people is what I'm talking about. On a Sunday or some other place, on a, on a weekday as a, as a group leader or something else, we want you to have a role where you're investing in other people here And we really believe that if I could boil down our strategy for what we want to build a community, we want everybody to get a friend and get a job. And if we can do that, we are more than halfway there. (laughs) David is this guy who's saying, here are the people who put their fingerprints on my soul. And I want to look a little bit wider. The past two weeks we've been talking about friendship in particular, but I want to talk, I want to look back on David's life with a very, from a very high view. And I want to talk just three kinds of relationships that I see that David had that were critical, that were important for him. And I want to talk about how you and me, we both need those kind of relationships in our lives. So number one, for those of you who take notes, everyone needs a Samuel to listen to. Early in David's life, when he was no more than a teenager, the Bible recounts the moment when the prophet Samuel shows up at David's father Jesse's house. So in 1 Samuel 16, it says this, the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, 
Speaking of the man that Samuel was going to anoint or choose to be the next king, he says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we could stop right there and, and have prayer and close, right? <laughs> but then it goes on. It says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And he asked him, Are these all the sons that you have? Jesse answered, there, well, there's still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. So Samuel said, send for him, and I won't sit down. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And could you imagine at that moment with the prophet? Now, mind you, the Bible also says that all of them were terrified when, when Samuel walked in because this guy has some influence in the nation, right? And so he says, go get your son from the field, and we're not going to sit down until he gets here. It just, it just read between the lines of the Bible how awkward those moments were, you know. Um, can I get you something to drink? Um, no? Okay. Something to eat? You know, you can just imagine that it was just like this, this really long, awkward pause, pregnant pause, and then it says that, that, that they sent for David and they had him brought in. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features, and the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And it was Samuel who was the first one to identify in David this anointing, this calling, this, this mantle that was on David to be a king and a liberator for Israel. Now, there is a way that we see ourselves, right? And there is a way that other people see us. But then there is a way that God sees us. These are three different things. And so, of course, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna read between the lines and probably anticipate right now that I, I'm going to say what matters most to us is how God sees us. But really, what matters most to us is not just how God sees us, but what we believe about how God sees us. Okay? How we understand the way that God sees us is really important. And here we see in David's life, there was a man, Samuel, who, who saw him, though he was the youngest, though he was forgotten, he said, I want you to know that God sees you and God has chosen you. Now, we already see this at work in our family, and I see this at work um, in my own life. I was the youngest of five kids, and with the first child, there are so many pictures of them, right? Everything they do, everything they do is wonderful. Everything they do is a miracle. Oh, my goodness. The second child, it's pretty good. There's not nearly as many. But by the time the fifth child comes around, there is no enthusiasm left for this, okay? Oh, oh my goodness, he's, wa he's walking. How long has he been walking for? I mean... Check it. Oh, he's, he, Stephen was just, he was talking. I, how long, has he been talking for a while? I don't know. You know, like, you know, basically, you're basically, it's like a pack of wolves. It's like a Lord of the Flies situation. You are raised by your siblings at that point when there's five kids. There's just no more novelty left in whatever you do, which is why I, which is literally why I am on this stage right now, because I basically had two choices in life, and the first one was the CIA, because there's hardly any physical record of my childhood. I'm a perfect candidate for for spyhood, right? I barely exist, right? But if I didn't choose that, then I had to be up on stage because my whole childhood was basically me going, you know, look at me, I'm over here, pay attention, I can sing, I can talk, I can do things, you know, and, and that was basically what it is. So youngest people, you always see youngest siblings are, are generally going to end up on stage somewhere because they've been practicing for it their whole life, trying to get attention. 
David is the youngest of, of, of eight, right? And he's the least of all his brothers. His own father did not even think to include him when Samuel asked to see his sons. That had to sting, right? A lot of scholars believe that David may have been a, a child born of an affair, out of wedlock. So his own father was ashamed of him and didn't want to include him in his lineup of sons. Now, there is a thing in our world where people will define you by your worst moment. The shame either that's on you because of something that happened to you or the shame that's on your family or the shame whatever that is defined, they will define you by your worst moment. They'll put labels on you. And they'll continually remind you of your failure or of your shame. But here's the great news today. If that doesn't matter to God, God does not define you by your worst moment. God defines you by his best moment. And I think that's really important. It's not even your best moment. It's his best moment that defines you. When he sees you, he sees the finished product, the individual, the man or the woman who's growing up to look like Jesus. That's the best moment of God to say, I see you and I see Jesus expressing his life through you. That's the way that the Bible says God sees you. Philippians 1.6 says this, God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. There's no one who goes to a master artist in the middle of his work and says, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that you're missing the eye right over here, right? You gotta, you gotta paint this, this, they have no eyebrows, okay? <laughs> they have no eyebrows, and that's weird. Nobody does that to the master artist because they trust that the master artist is in process. When, you know, no matter what, when things aren't finished, they know that because this is a, 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 an expert, because this is an artist, he's going to make it look right. You need to see that for yourself as well. It's hard to believe sometimes, right? Because you might really want to be righteous, but you're... You're actually kind of ratchet today. You, you might want to be wise, but a lot of times you act the fool. You might want to be generous, but you find yourself being stingy. You know, that's just that impulse to, to be greedy instead. And that's when it matters. When, when, when you see that tension in your life, that's when it matters that you have a Samuel. That's when it matters that you have somebody who's speaking into your life because you need somebody who can identify what you will be, not just what you are, what you can be instead of what you're wrestling with today. You need somebody who sees with an eye of faith to what God has determined to do in you. You need somebody who's further along in the faith than you are, with eyes trained better than yours to see. You need somebody who won't hesitate to call you out when you're running from God or when you're operating in ways that are contrary to what God wants to do in your life, who has permission to address the most personal areas of your life with candor and with wisdom. That's what you need. And now, this is especially applicable to young people and to young adults, but it still matters to us adults. There are still people in my life who address these things on a regular basis, and let me tell you, I need them. There are so many blind spots, there are so many areas where I need somebody to speak into those areas where not only do I need encouragement, but I need correction. Sometimes I might even need rebuke or, or, or a little bit of a challenge to me because, because not one of us is able to see with 20-20 vision into our own lives. And so you need a Samuel who can speak to you and to whom you will listen. Let them help you discern your calling, your gifts. Let them help you nurture those callings and those gifts with wise words and thoughtful guidance. It's not easy to find this, 
But if you set your heart on it, if you ask God for this, I really believe that he will give this to you. And this is the premise. This is kind of underneath everything I'm saying, that all of these relationships, if you even look at David's life, these weren't things that David necessarily, um, you know, you know, paid for or there was no, tr nothing, no transaction. God brought these people to him because he had a heart after God. And so at every one of these relationships that I talk about, just know this, God will bring them to you if you will desire them. Now, there are other ways. If you, if you want to know, there are other ways that I really, but first of all, with a Samuel, and this isn't in my notes, but let me just give you, because some of you guys, I feel like, how do I get that? With a Samuel, number one, don't waste time, right? Make sure that when they talk to you, when you ask for their time, that you're willing to listen to them, act on it, and make the most of their time. The way to do that, number two, is as often as possible, serve them. If in some way you can serve them, you're giving back time to them. You're giving back uh, energy to them in some way. And so, so whatever little bit that you can do, when you get around them, you find your way. Look at how Elisha was with Elijah. In, in, in the man of God's life, this prophet Elijah, Elisha said, hey, you know what? You get up, I'm going to wash your hands and your feet, and, when you go to, and I'm going to cook for you, and then I'm going to go to bed. Now, there was this other thing called the school of the prophets, and all the school of the prophets were like going in their classes, and they were getting their degrees in prophecy, and Elisha is over here just washing hands and feet and cooking for the man of God, right? And I'm sure that he felt kind of dumb when the school of prophets came by and they're like, hey, did you take, uh, you know, uh, you know you, did you do exegesis 102? You know, I you know, and he was like, I haven't done that. Actually, I've just been over here washing some hands and some feet and do, doing, some, doing some cooking and whatever else. But you know what? Because he was near, there's nothing wrong with those classes, but because he was near the man of God, because he was serving the prophet Elijah, when it came time for that mantle to fall, when it came time, he had seen what it was to walk in the ways of God. And God said, I'm going to give you a double portion of what I gave to Elijah. So that Samuel in your life is the one that you go to and you make the most, you let them know that you will do everything you can to make it easy for them to speak into your life and to listen to them. Number two, everyone needs a Jonathan to partner with. There's hardly a better picture of friendship in the scriptures than the one between David and Jonathan. It was a very uh, unlikely friendship, as we're going to find out in a second. But this young man, Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul, Somehow his heart was so knit with David's that these guys were like thick as thieves. <laughs> they, they rolled together. They had each other's backs. Here's what 1 Samuel 18 says. By the time David had finished reporting to Saul, Jonathan was deeply impressed with David. An immediate bond was forged between them, and he became totally committed to David. From that point on, he would be David's number one advocate and friend. Isn't it great? Think about having a number one advocate and friend in your life. There's no deeper degree of friendship than when, when you and another person have bonded and agreed to, committed to a common mission. That's what makes marriages strong. Honestly, every marriage has its fair share of conflict, some more than others. But the way that C.S. Lewis talked about it, he said that when two people are in a marriage, they start out face to face, right? That's romance. That's that kind of relationship. And some of you here are just saying, oh my goodness, if I could just get that, I just need that face-to-face. -face. I need it. You know, some of you single people here, are, there, there's like this deep sense of, 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 of need for that, and that's understandable, but all the married people and all the people who've been walking together for a long time will tell you, well, that lasts for a while, and that's wonderful, and you want that, but it, eventually everybody has, nobody can stay face-to-face. -face. Eventually, you've got to go shoulder-to-shoulder. 
Eventually, you've got to, to begin moving toward a common vision because what makes marriages last over the long haul is not that romance, is not that you know, sense of butterflies, is not the attraction. What makes them last over the long haul is two people who've agreed that we are going to work toward this mission, this goal, these values, this way. We're going to do this together. That's what makes those relationships strong is when it goes from romance to friendship. And the same is true of those other friends in our lives it's wonderful to have common interests, but a common mission is what really drives depth of relationship. Jonathan believed in David's calling and purpose and vice versa, and they were committed to each other. We need people like that in our lives. We've been talking about it over the past couple weeks, and so I'm not going to spend as much time on this point, but we need people who can worship when we can't worship. We need people who can believe when we can't. We need people who will pray when we don't know how to pray. That's the kind of friend that we need. Not just somebody who, who you get along with. That's nice. Not just somebody who can, you, know, you can do activities with or go out and golf together with. You need a friend in your life who, who will go shoulder to shoulder with you and believe for God's purposes to be accomplished in your life and in your family. Who will pray for you, believe for you, strive with you. The Bible, the Bible just says really plainly that when we, we get together, we are supposed to be interdependent, leaning on one another. Now, human beings have what are called mirror neurons. They fire when, not just when we do something, but those neurons are, are firing, but also when we witness, when we see somebody else doing something, it's an interesting thing. It's been observed in primates and in human beings that when we see other, uh, an activity that somebody else is doing, uh, those same neurons that are firing in them, we're act they're actually firing in our brain. So it's almost like we enter into the experience that they're having. Now, I want you to see this today because this is important. When we get together, when we are together with friends, and then when we get together on a Sunday morning like this, we not only imitate, but we also experience this. We see other people singing songs of worship and praise. And you know what? You might come in, and your neurons aren't firing, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's a Thanksgiving neuron, right? I don't think there's a praise neuron per se, but your praise neurons might not, might not be firing at that moment, but you see other people praising God, and it's almost like you get pulled into that experience with them. You see other people believing. Your faith neurons, they're not firing, but you see other people believing, and it's almost like you experience what they are experiencing just by being near them. You need some friends to be near you who are going to believe when you can't believe because what's going to happen is their faith is going to, it's almost like you're going to borrow their faith. You're going to borrow their praise. You're going to borrow a little bit of their joy. You're going to borrow whatever, they, whatever you need today. It's possible for those friendships to believe, for those friendships to provide it. You know what else happens though? What else we share? Cynicism, doubt, pessimism. And so I want to encourage you today, be careful what kind of negativity and resentment you throw around when you're with friends or when you're with others. Because hardly anything is as poisonous to the human spirit as a secondhand offense. Now what I mean by that is it will poison you when you start, when, you're, when your offense neurons start firing because of what somebody else is Oh, I can't believe they did that to you. Oh, I'm offended too. <laughs> I'm mad too. It didn't happen to me, but I'm mad on your behalf. That is, a, that, that is a poison to our spirit. So be careful how you share that with other people. When the 12 spies came back from the promised land, 10 out of 12 of these men, for those of you who know the story, 
They were, in this, they were in the promised land. They came back and they said, whoa, we cannot do this. We, he said, we saw all these people there and we were like grasshoppers. And isn't it interesting? He didn't say we were like grasshoppers to them. The spies, they said we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Their doubt made them smaller, right? But there were two of these men who said, no, I can see it the way God sees it. And that is that God's going to help us to take the land. A covenant friendship is going to be committed to encouragement and life-giving words of faith. So let me, are, are you a Jonathan to somebody? Do you have a Jonathan today? That's the real question, those two questions. Somebody told me once that drowning, they called it this, I thought it was really interesting, they said drowning is the silent killer. 80% of drowning victims are around people, other people who could help them at that very moment. But nobody notices, nobody sees. Do you see this today, that when people come into New City Church, or your people at work, or your people in your neighborhood, there are people that are, they're, they're literally feeling like they're, they're drowning. And they don't have anybody to call to. And you and I need to be, have a sense of responsibility that I will be a friend to somebody. I'll get shoulder to shoulder with somebody so that when they start going under, I'm there to pull them up. Hebrews 10 says this, let us think of ways to provoke one another to love and good works. Don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect getting together because just being together is key. We could actually, somebody might have the guts today to come forward at the end of service and tell a prayer leader, hey, could you pray for me because I'm just, I'm going through this, this crisis in my marriage. And you know what? They might pray for you. Let me encourage our prayer leaders. You say, is there anything else I can do for you after I've prayed? Is there a way I can support you? You might meet somebody here at church. You might meet somebody at work, whatever, and, and you realize, you know, if there's nobody else, there might not be anybody else near this person who's drowning that could help them, just you. So be open to how God might put you shoulder to shoulder with somebody to be able to help them. Ephesians 4.15 says, Then, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every way into Christ. When normal people like you and me speak the truth and we do it in love, Everybody grows up. Everybody gets better. We're no longer consumers looking for somebody else to feed us. We, we, we become teachers almost. And teachers are the ones, we, we learn best when we have to teach something, right? You will never grow in your faith as much as when you are alongside somebody else helping them grow. Everybody needs a Jonathan. Number three, everybody needs a Saul to forgive. Saul was somebody who'd been close to David whom David had served, but he began to fear David's calling and anointing. The favor that was on David's life made Saul jealous, and it ultimately caused Saul to try and kill David. David had to go on the run, and for seven years, literally for seven years, Saul is hunting David through, through, from town to town, in the wilderness, every place around the, the, uh, it, you know, the countryside there for seven years. He is, it ended up being the most critical test of, of preparation in David's life. You could look at, was it Goliath? Was it, uh, you know, was it the, 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 the friendship with Jonathan? What, what was it that made David ready to be king? What was it that God was doing in him? But I would say probably the most important test in David's life was, would he be willing to honor God and to trust God and forgive Saul? See, what does God use? Let me start actually like this. What has the potential to destroy your faith? Trials. What does God use to develop your faith? Trials. 
It's a high-stakes game, right? Because we experience this. We get wounded. We get hurt by somebody. And the choice we're faced with is, will I internalize this? Will I become bitter? Will I become resentful? Will I, will I, will I blame God because he allowed it to happen in my life? Whatever trial that you walk through, whatever, ways, whatever, whatever relationship is in your life where you need to forgive them, let me tell you, this is a test of your maturity. It's a way even that God is developing you to actually teach you how to be more like him. There are single people trials, and there are married people trials. <laughs> They're different. There are poor people trials, and there are rich people trials. Some of you are like, I would like to try out those rich people trials if you could, please. <laughs> but here's the truth. Money will test your character in ways that poverty won't. And marriage will test your character in ways that singleness won't. So get ready. Some of you are praying, man, if I could just get out of this season of singleness, if I could just get married, then I'll, oh man, it's gonna be the best. It's, everything's gonna be good. And you're gonna find, what you're gonna find on the other side of your single trials are some married trials. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the answer to your prayer becomes another prayer request, right? <laughs> I prayed for him in my life, and now I'm praying for him because I might kill him, right? This is, this is the way that this all works. And so recognize what God is doing in you, whatever season you are in, be wise enough to stay faithful in that season because that's the key to graduating to the next season. In the Psalms, we have a record of David running from Saul, wrestling with God to try and trust him. Not every Psalm in, in the Bible, for some of you who might not read the Bible very much, though I would encourage that, I would say not every psalm is all about praise and thanksgiving. We sing those psalms because they're the good ones for Sunday morning, right? <laughs> we don't sing the other ones where it says, why have you forsaken me, O God? Day and night, tears have been my only food, right? <laughs> That's not a good one for Sunday morning church, but it's in the book. And it's the record of how David was wrestling with God, pouring out his lament, pouring out his complaints. Some of you today, if you, before you can ever get your mouth filled with praise like we're talking about, you're going to have to empty it with maybe a little bit of a sense of repentance or lament or sadness. It's okay for you to say, God, where are you? Because I'm wrestling with you in this. I need to trust you. I've got a soul to forgive in my life, but I don't want to manipulate. I don't want to take things into my own hand. I want to honor you and trust you. It was in learning to forgive Saul that David was shaped into the man after God's heart. So who has God placed in your life who's meant to teach you forgiveness? What past offense do you need to let go of today or cut loose so that you can grow? You need a Samuel to listen to. You need a Jonathan to partner with. And you need a, you need a Saul to forgive. This friend of mine was a Little League baseball coach. He was working on batting practice uh, with, the, with the team, and his son was on the team. His son, I think, was about 13 or 14 years old. And one of the dads came up to him and said, uh, hey, you know, I, can I help you at all? Is there anything I can do for you? And he said, well, and he'd been coaching the team for a couple years. He was like, it's okay, I, I've got this. Maybe, he's like, if you just want to wait over there by the fence, if I need anything, I'll let you know. And as they're walking out, his son was like, oh, hey, did you meet, you know, Mike's dad? I saw you talking to him. And he said, yeah. And he said, oh, did you know that he, he was 12 years in the major leagues? 
And then come to find out as he got to know this guy, this guy was a two-sport All-American at Stanford, and then he played 12 years for the Yankees and the Reds, okay? And he had asked him to stand on the fence. <laughs> I think we've all had that sort of experience. And I, I would relate it to this, that a lot of times for some of you here, your, your life to this moment, to this morning, up to coming in here today, it, it's been like saying, uh, you know, you, you, you are aware that Jesus has loved you. You are aware of what God has done for you. You are aware of what he has offered to you. But you've asked him maybe to stand along the fence and said, hey, I got this, God. And let me ask you, how well has that gone for you so far? <laughs> I, I've got this. We tell, we tell Christ to stand on the fence and watch us do our thing when in truth, nothing that we have in our skill set can compare to what he can do. No status that we achieve, no accolades that we earn, no money that we make, no agrees, degrees that we attain can do for us what Jesus wants to do for us. And so if you're here today and he's not the captain of your life, if he's not the one whose opinion and whose wisdom matter most, most to you, if you haven't trusted yourself to his mercy and forgiveness, to his wisdom, and to his lordship, then I can't think of a better day to do that than today. In John 3, 3, this man comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. His name is Nicodemus. And he says, Jesus, I can tell your teacher, but I just, I just need you to tell me. How, how, do I, how, do I, how do I find the kingdom of God? And Jesus looks at him and says, nobody gets to the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus asks one of the all-time dumbest follow-up questions in the Bible. He says, well, how can a man enter his mother's womb again? You know, like, <laughs> And Jesus says, you don't get it at all, Nicodemus. You don't get it because you got degrees, you got letters after your name, you got status in the community. You got, you got wealth and influence. He says, you don't get it. All that matters nothing to God. And so anybody who wants to see the kingdom of God has to start over and be born of the Spirit, he says. You must be born again. So let me tell you today, you must be born again. And we talk about friendship, we talk about these relationships, but the most critical relationship in your life is your relationship to God. And the Bible says that that was severed the minute we chose sin, the minute that you and I stepped away from him, that relationship was severed. But because of what Jesus did for you and me, it can be restored today. You must be born again.